It's good to see you. Do you guys ever show up to work and you're totally committed to the cause, whether it's your personal business, like that you're trying to create, like as an entrepreneur, or you totally believe in the, wait, what are you doing? I'm just gonna turn this off, there's something weird on the screen. I'm sorry to interrupt. You don't need to be sorry. I mean, you are sorry, but you don't need to be sorry. <laughs> that was a cheap joke. I don't really mean any of it, but it was a great joke, let's be honest. Yeah, I love that guy to death. Um, yeah, so you show up to work, and, and, and you want to give your best self, but you, 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 don't, you don't have it. <laughs> well played. Well played, my friend. I'm not sure I have it today, but I'm totally committed to the reality of the scriptures this day. So in Russia in the 20s, it was just after the Bolshevik Revolution. It was over, but Stalin was still like trying to claim reality, a, a narrative reality, not just a political reality, but like the story that exists in the world. And he sent political spe speakers, which I would call preachers, they, they wouldn't call them that, uh, all across the Russian land. But just so you know, Russia has 11 time zones. Like, it's a big country. And, and what they were proclaiming was the glory of the state and the folly of religion, especially Christianity. And citizens were rounded up, sometimes by force, to go to some public square or public auditorium to hear the messages by the commissars. And the message was clear. Among other things, including the state's ability to save you, that Christianity would never be again. The church was done. One time in one of these public forums, They listened to a commissar for three hours, and his message was to deconvert them. When he had finished, he asked for questions, and they asked questions, and several answered. You know, he answered. He felt good about it, but then there was this guy who was a pastor who stood up at the back of the hall, and he said, this is one thing I want to say to you. Christ is risen. And the entire crowd responded, Christ is risen indeed. This illustration has nothing to do with Russia invading Ukraine. I found this four days ago. That was three days ago. I have opinions about all that most of them about what we already experienced is that, that tanks and rifles would become farming tools and fishing equipment. 
I'm bringing this to you because this is the absolute, that story is absolute opposite of our passage today. It's the inverse of it. Yes, there's the same passion for convincing fellow countrymen of a universal reality. But it's totally different because the life of Jesus is not about force that requires flourishing. It's about flourishing that, that, that ends up in a forceful reality. Because God's just like that. He uses the broken, the imprisoned, the outcast, the oppressed. God delights in the foolish things. Precisely to upend the world we live in. Y'all, Peter, 60 days before this event, was a Jesus denier. Three times. And now he stands in the place that in which Jesus was condemned and sentenced to death. And he shows up fearless. And he's proclaiming what every single human being, and especially his fellow countrymen, have wanted for their entire lives. The rescuer of the world. God loves the underdog. The question isn't whether we are like strong enough to follow Jesus, convinced enough to follow Jesus, but are we weak enough to admit humble enough and broken enough to follow Jesus. Jesus always works the back of the room. And the back of the room are the ones that are most likely to respond to Jesus. It's the way he upends the cruel world we live in. And it's beautiful. But I want to make sure you get this story. I just told you an anti-story, but this is the true story. And this is what we call exegesis, out of, or leading out of the text. There's jealousy and there's jailing. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, the party of the Sadducees, filled with jealousy. And they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison, which was probably just on the side of the temple. These details matter. The high priest is closer to the commissar than the Christ. He's a political operative. I'm not saying he's a bad human being. He wants good things for Israel. And his, the Sadducees are his political party totally succumbed to the rule of Rome and that empire. Only people in power fear uprisings and civil unrest because they've been resting. So of course they're jealous because there's this like public power that's going on. Like people are being healed by shadows. It's ridiculous. Right? Like people are like coming to God in a transformed way. 
Lives have been changed, but the Sadducees and the high priests want to rule. The apostles don't want to rule, they just want to proclaim what's real in the world. Retell, rejoice at the story of Jesus. But public worship, like right now, and right now when our Ukrainian brothers and sisters are worshiping, it's utterly disruptive. And the powers that be jail the apostles in the story. But thankfully, there's a power beyond the powers that be. And so we get divine intervention and civil disobedience. An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple, the public reality of Israel, and tell the people all the words of this life. And when they heard, they said, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. By the way, the jails was closed back, which is like kind of a weird thing that the angel did. Totally locked. I have no idea what that's all about. Look, I'm a Cold War kid. My mom was a hippie in Italy. They had those. My grandfather, Ettore Morandini, led his small Italian town against Mussolini and ended up in a concentration camp in, in the south side of Germany. Civil disobedience may be too natural for me, but civil disobedience is more naturally Christian than expressed in our American culture. But the civil disobedience of this passage is led by divine intervention and edict. And there's lots of civil disobedience that's not led by divine intervention or edict. It's literally a miracle. God sent an angel to unlock a door and then relock it, weird, and tells them to go tell the story of this life, this life that we have in God. It's just awesome. I don't know what to do with it all. Like, I really don't. So, of course, the authorities do what the authorities do, which is the council meets. And so the council meets. So there's a council, and there's conflict, and there's the council, which is S-E-L. C-I-L-S-E-L. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, C-I-L, And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, the resurrected one. Yet here you have filled filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God and not y'all. Peter crumbled 60 days before this. And yet now, (laughs) he doesn't know fear. 
because the Spirit has done something in him. This is the second time he's told them this, and the fourth time he's preached. The guy who literally three times denied any association with Jesus at that time with no actual threat to his life. And now? Last time he said, I can only, I can only speak about what I've seen and heard. And this time he says, I must obey God and not y'all. And this guy, Gamaliel, who's a Pharisee, by the way, I, I could do 10 minutes on the difference between Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees are like this kind of back-to-the-Bible movement, but they were kind of legalistic, kind of jerky, actually. But this was a, a trusted one. And so he goes to the council and he says, look, y'all, but people have been messing this up for, for, for a long time. There was this one dude who had 400 followers, and when he died, it was over. And there was this other dude, when he was no longer important, it all dissipated. But this one was killed by us, and yet something amazing is happening. So what we need to do is just let them be. We just need to let them be. Because we don't want to oppose God. We may be wrong. What, what an utter humility, by the way. So, don't try to control this. God will bless this movement or he'll blow it up. He's done it before. So the, the council, C-I-L, took his council, S-E-L, kind of. Because what they did was they said, yeah, generally you agree, but we're still going to beat them. We're going to still get our licks on him. And we're also going to say to them, you still can't talk. Power is a very forceful reality in our lives. I'm not sure what the greater miracle is. The fact that they were imprisoned, let loose, the doors were locked, and they started preaching, or the fact that, verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Like, which one's the greater miracle? I'm not sure. This is a whole political, free speech, religious power struggle that includes jail time, physical cruelty, and ends with the oppression of the, the, the protesters. And those protesters end in gratitude and rejoicing of God. Clearly, whatever happened in Acts 2, with the fire and the tongues and all that stuff, something like fundamentally shifted in God's church. That's the exegesis, the, the leading out of the text. What does that mean for us? There's a divine miracle, a divisive and divided church. There's social 
political, which are the same thing in that day. We didn't have those divisions back then. Conflict. There is violence. Corporal punishment. And the absolute expansion of the church. All at the same time. How do we orient to this story? In a world that may be on the verge of World War III. And many of us are worried about mask mandates. In a waning pandemic, dear Lord, please let it be a waning pandemic. We live in a toxic culture. And there are power grabs all around, online, in our families, and at the federal level. There is no way to do this passage justice, literally, not just because my son's in an airport going to Syracuse and I just want to be on that plane. Because we live in a world that's chaotic, and on Tuesday my worst problem was mask mandates. I was going to say, hey, you know what we should do? Just read this passage over and over again for 20 minutes in silence and see what the Spirit does. But, alas, God has called me to you, and he's called you to me, and so i got to do other stuff. <laughs> amen. Right, yeah, just, yeah, amen. This is why I'm not on applying to Syracuse right now, just in case you're wondering. Um, so if, as I read this this week, and I read commentary and all this stuff, I just was, and I listened to a sermon, by the way, by someone that he and I would not agree on a lot of things, but that sermon was amazing. I may send it out to you this week, if I remember. Um, but his whole approach to this passage was keep the main things the main things. Jesus is the Christ. And Luke actually flips it and says, the Christ is Jesus. Because if we orient ourselves to a first century church Jewish reality, it's because that they've been longing for the Messiah, the one who would come and fix everything. And he says, the one who's going to fix everything that's already a category in your mind is actually Jesus who you killed. And he wasn't doing it to shame them. He was doing it to do what he said he was going to do, which was actually give them repentance and forgiveness of sin. And this is an internal Jewish conflict. Rome doesn't give a flip about what's going on right now. The Sadducees might, but Rome doesn't. You killed him by hanging him on a tree. But he's the one you hoped for. And the reason he did that was so that you could repent. And we treat repentance as a dirty word. But it's actually not. It's a life-giving word. Because if you're sitting here and you don't think you need repentance and forgiveness of sins, just stay a little longer in your soul. Because if you don't think you need it, that's folly. And if you think you can manage your way out of it, that's arrogance. It's hubris at the highest reality. And we're not saying this, and I'm not saying this because I haven't done this or I don't do this. I'm saying this because 
That's reality. And I understand the temptation to pretend that repentance is a dirty word. I understand the temptation that I can manage it on my own. But repentance is a gift. It's one of the main things. And if you will sit in the reality of your need for repentance and forgiveness, and you'll turn to Jesus for it, you will find life. And yet, this is about proclamation. It's about, like, telling the world or their world about who Jesus is. And so it does have, have to do with kind of evangelism. Please just, like, refrain from filling the language that I just used, evangelism, with stuff that you hate. Because here, the angel of the Lord I got power. I don't have power. The Holy Spirit comes down and has power, but I actually have battery power now, so that's good. I mean, the angel of the Lord didn't even say, go talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. What he said was, go talk all the words that Jesus said in this life. He uses this life, this life that we live in. That's beautiful because all your evangelist instincts need to be around this life that you actually live in Jesus. It's not about like convincing someone because you're smarter than them. Apologetics are awesome, but this is not about apologetics. You don't have to be smarter than the person that converts under you. You have to tell them about this life. And this life is about your actual repentance and forgiveness. It's not about your worldview. It's not about your internal machinations. It's not about your own understanding of your experience of acceptance, safety, or even your own sense of flourishing. It's actually outside of us. This life is not this life that we create. It's this life we enter into. And who entered into us? This exists outside of our cultural moment. It exists apart and outside, but it includes us. It's just outside of us. Our lives, friends, are not about self-fulfillment. It's about this life in God, this life in Jesus. There was no strategy. There weren't like the like masters, uh, their books have been written about like the master plan of evangelism. Great book, but there weren't any strategies for this. People were just like experiencing God and telling their neighbors. That's it. So let us come together and experience God and his goodness and kindness to us.
And yet it requires a sense of loyalty that we would yield and heed to Jesus more than, as Peter says, must obey God and not men. But our loyalty is to this life that we've we've been given in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't find convenient paths to things that we do. And so that means we must be humble, loyal, and obedient to the message and manner of Jesus. Jesus was right about everything. But what, what marked him wasn't just him being right about everything, but the manner in which he lived with people. So you can be right and wrong at the same time. It means that we're loyal to God and not man on Facebook, Twitter, and Insta in the most complicated time in history. Look, y'all, during the Ukraine thing, if we lived 70 years ago, we'd be going to the movie theater and seeing the live stream, and we'd all experience this together and then talk about it. But that's not where we live. And so everything has been curated to our desires, not this life. And so you can find any opinion you want to that will agree with you. But that's not this life. But it is like one of our foundational temptations to have loyalty to all the streaming, noisy stuff that comes into our heads and not Jesus. And I'm with you. Because this week, what I wanted to do was like write to you about mass mandates and why we're trying to be sensitive and get a 10 up and have one service and all that stuff. Then I was like, oh, well, now it's the next day. So now what I want to do is pray about being peacekeepers and priest prayers in the world. At all the same time, I just wanted to be with my son. Because I'm a man. I'm a father. That's all I really, really wanted to do. But the world that we live in is not fair. It doesn't play by the rules of our own health. The circumstances are not fair. My worst fear this week on Tuesday was like, can we stay at church with whatever decision a bunch of tired elders made about masks? And then Wednesday happened. If you want me to come to you and say, Loyalty to Jesus means X or Y on your political spectrum. I cannot do that. I just won't. Not because I don't really have any idea, but because I think it's bigger than that. More important than that, and it involves our repentance and forgiveness. And we need to have patience with each other about our finiteness and our fallenness. And we live in a world that is, and I say this word right, I I intend to say this word, it's actually in my notes, damnably self-assure. And part of our witness to the world is not to be that, but be heavenly committed 
to the manner and message of Jesus. Loyalty to God is not about being right. It's not about civil disobedience. It's not about a moral cause. It sometimes includes all of those things. But it's about proclaiming this life, a life that we live in repentance and forgiveness for ourselves and our neighbors. So I don't know the answers to all the questions, but I stand before you and say, I know this, that the spirit of the living God is alive and well. And we have to have the humility, repentance, and forgiveness to live accordingly. A kind of moral confidence, a kind of reality confidence that the life, death, resurrection, and since we're in Acts, the ascension of Jesus actually changes our world. And our job is to have this kind of undaunted sensitivity to the Spirit as He leads us. It's not first about certainty. He may lead us to that kind of level. But it's about this kind of reliance in Him. And I know I'm going long, but if I had more time, I would have preached you a shorter sermon. Please don't underestimate that what is required here is a kind of sacred suffering. They're beaten and worship. That is the definition of sacred suffering. There's a church in Asia about 10 years ago. There, you've, you've probably seen, if you've been here a little while, you've probably seen that we have these like questions for membership. They're wonderful questions in some ways. But here are the questions to join this church. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? Question one. Question two. Are you willing to lose your job? Three. Are we willing to go to the village and those who persecute you, forgive them and share them the love of Christ? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die? We will suffer if we embody the message and manner of Jesus. Sometimes we suffer because we're just being jerks. Let's just be honest. And sometimes we're jerks in the name of Jesus. But that's not what this is talking about. What this is talking about is that, that when you oppose your friend group, when you um, don't hold the line to your people, whoever your people are, when you, when you actually fight against that, then you will suffer. Because there's no pure system in the world. All we have is this life. So we will always be opposed and supportive of different causes. You will be shunned and shamed if you do this. You will be maligned and misunderstood. It's okay. Because out of that becomes this sacred suffering where we worship. So the story I told you about um, the, the, the commissars in Russia was told by Gordon MacDonald, who understands his own folly and brokenness. 
And so he was preaching. He had the three sermons that Sunday. God bless him. And a Russian woman came up to him in a heavy Russian accent and said, I am from Russia. Thank you for telling me the story, this story. It moved me greatly. But I must tell you one more thing about that story that I want you to tell to everyone else. You need to tell the people that when the crowd said, Christ has risen indeed, they all went to jail. May our Lord give us courage to live in the manner and message of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, help us. We're finite and fallen. I am finite and fallen. I'd rather be on a plane right now. And you call us to suffer and live and be together and figure out what it means to proclaim this life that we have in you. Lord Jesus, would you help us do that? We pray in your name. Amen.